So, um, we're trying to finish out Hebrews 3 today, and it starts like this. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those uh, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So it said, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Uh, we need to take a quick look at the context of this. Uh, similar to, we've been talking through this as we've walked through Hebrews, uh, of the comparisons uh, between the Old and the New Testament and understanding in context what happened in the Old Testament uh, to what is now going on kind of in a post-Jesus era. And we need to take a quick look at the context of this particular passage and remember the behavior of the nation of Israel uh, both during and after their, their exodus. So uh, we're going to take a quick fly over the nation of Israel and we're going we're to skip some things, but we'll see if we can get an impression of their behavior that's being addressed here. Uh, the nation of Israel was a product of a promise God made uh, to Abraham. Um, eventually this nation starts to become big and they become enslaved in Egypt. Uh, they had entered Egypt, kind of a small nation and under a different pharaoh. They grew and uh, the pharaoh changes and he looks out and he sees this group of people um, who, who are foreign and in his land and now he sees them as a threat. So they were there on what would have been decent terms and then they become enslaved. They are enslaved under the pharaoh of Egypt. Um, they're in Egypt for over 400 years. They are in slavery under that pharaoh for 330 of those years. All this time they're asking for God to deliver them. Okay? Get, get us out of this, this uh, bondage, if you want to think of it in the old... Uh, Charlton Heston fashion. So God chooses Moses to be the deliverer. And to enact this deliverance, he basically sends Moses in and says, I want you to demand that Pharaoh let the people go. And if he doesn't, uh, I'm going I'm to do some stuff. I'm going to send some plagues, um, take some action that will open up his eyes so that he will eventually let this happen. Uh, so ultimately, God is wanting to show both Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. He's looking to demonstrate his power through this action. Okay? We're going to look at these, uh, remind ourselves of these ten uh, plagues real quick. The first is blood. This is the water in the Nile River is turned to blood. They're having to dig trenches on the side of the Nile to get water that isn't bloody. Uh, there's frogs. The land is filled with frogs. Uh, Moses has Pharaoh give him the time of when the frogs are to go away so that he can prove that it's not just a, a mass uh, influx of frogs who, who like the smooth lifestyle and warm climate of Egypt that God sent them. So uh, Moses gives the time, or Pharaoh gives the time, and God takes him away at the appointed time to prove that it's of God. Uh, lice, Aaron takes his staff and he strikes the land and becomes lice throughout Egypt. Flies, there's swarms of flies, and they're harming people and livestock. I don't know what kind of flies you generally encounter, but the types of flies that are harming people and livestock are not to be messed with. And that's what's going on in Egypt. Um, it's worth noting that these did not impact the nation of Israel. Okay? These swarms of flies, uh, you're going to notice if you're sitting in your camp and, and you walk over a certain line when your land, your land of Goshen, which is where they're staying, ends, and suddenly there's swarms of flies everywhere. But you can take a step back in your spot and no flies at all. 
Uh, pestilence, there's a plague on the livestock. Uh, again, the, the livestock of the nation of Israel is not harmed. Uh, boils, there's a skin disease. I thought this would have been a cool image. This, it says in the Bible that uh, Aaron and, and Moses take um, soot from like a, a, a furnace and they, they just like throw it toward Pharaoh's general presence. It seems like it would have been anticlimactic to start off with, but once you saw it pay off, uh, this pestilence kind of rolling through, or the, the boils and the skin disease uh, would have kind of taken over. And it, it resulted in eruptions of skin disease for both people and livestock, and again, the nation of Israel is uh, spared from that. There's hail, it's kind of the, the, the more grandiose of the, uh, of the plagues. There's hail with fire coming out of it. There's damaged crops, livestock, people from this, and again, the land of Goshen is spared. Locust most stretches out his staff and the wind picks up from the east and blows all these locusts in. Uh, there's also total darkness. Three days of total darkness in the land of Egypt. But the Bible says that the houses of the Israelites had light. Again, you have light and you can look out in total darkness. It, it describes it as that they can feel it. The nation uh, of Egypt can feel the darkness. It's so thick. And then there's the death of the firstborn, what we generally celebrate as Passover, where... Um, they were required to put the, the blood of the lamb over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. Anybody that did not do that, their firstborn uh, was to die uh, during that, that process. So through all this, we need to recognize the nation of Israel as a witness. The, the first three plagues appear to impact, impact everybody. Uh, there are cases where the Bible is not exactly clear whether it was everybody or not. Uh, but the last seven, it's specific that the nation of Israel is, is sheltered from these plagues. They are not impacted when Egypt is. And here's the deal. Like we talked about, you would notice if there were frogs and lice and locusts everywhere. You would notice if outside your camp it was raining or hailing fire or it was completely dark but was not doing that where you're at and was light. You would hear about a rampant outbreak of boils. It's something people talk about. Pestilence and boils they share with each other. You would know. Okay? Everyone with the blood of the lamb above their door had their firstborn spared. Everyone without the blood did not have their firstborn spared. If you put the blood on the door and your child was spared, you would know. Think of the things that you are witness to in this situation. And the broad point is, in the nation of Israel, there is no denying the hand of God. You've seen it. There's no way you could be five plagues in and go, yeah, but it could just be a coincidence. I mean, frogs are frogs. They do what they want. Right? You've seen it. You've seen the hand of God. There's no denying that. If a guy punches you in the face... You believe in it. It's real because it starts to bruise up and you notice it. That's the situation that they're in. Okay, there is direct physical evidence that they were spared. Look, let's follow the, uh, the nation of Israel a little bit more. So Pharaoh eventually concedes. Uh, during all this time, the plagues show up. He hardens his heart. He, he, first he, he sees the, the miracle and then he says, okay, fine, you can go. And then his heart hardens and he brings it back in. He says, all right, I've changed my mind. You're not going, right? So he, he eventually concedes. And they head out, and God leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13.22 says um, that this, this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire did not depart from before the people. Okay? God is leading them with these pillars out of Egypt. And they get bundled up by the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's coming after them. So finally they're released from this bondage, and they're heading, and now they're stuck at the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh's coming behind them. And then we see this in Exodus 14.11. They're upset about this. And they're talking to Moses. And they say, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's pretty subtle. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's my favorite part. The Lord will fight for you. Shut up. Okay, you have only to be silent. So as Pharaoh's army has them backed by the Red Sea, God instructs Moses to raise his staff out and spread the sea apart so that they may cross. And it happens, right? Big sea, sea parts, dry land. Uh, the sea anemone is getting company that he didn't expect. People are roaming across to get to the other side. Pharaoh's army pursues, and once the nation of Israel is through, the waters fall, and they kill all of Pharaoh's army. Well, that worked out. So put yourself in the shoes of this nation of Israel for a moment. Mere moments after you were lambasting Moses for having the audacity to follow God's will and lead you from, uh, to exile from Egypt, which you've been begging for, by the way, for the last hundreds of years, and God delivers easily. You were all bent out of shape about what was going to happen. And it's a God-sized solution. Parting the sea is a God solution. And it's amazing, but it's also inevitable. Because God is to be believed. God is to be trusted. He doesn't lead you out from somewhere and then have you die at Pharaoh's hand next to the sea. Exodus 14.31 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, good. Sounds like they've turned a corner. This is good news. Except for in the next picture in Exodus, uh, we see that they're singing a song. They're pretty happy. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Things are going pretty well. But then right after, they seem to be upset again. Exodus 15.22 says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. Okay, cool. Water troubles, God provides. Good. We're in good shape. It continues, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Kind of a dramatic folk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And he does. First he sends quail. They get to eat quail for a while. And he's literally like sending bread or manna from heaven. And they just have to go harvest it. Food appears as dew. You just got to go pick it up. Okay? Okay, good. I think we've, maybe we've settled everything with our problems with the nation of Israel. Exodus 17.1, however, says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. I'm going to go with the water again. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's pretty stiff. You ever stood somewhere and said, Lord, are you among me or ain't you? That's, that's what they're taking. That's their frame of mind at the moment. 
So Moses ends up, uh, after this, we get this rectified. Okay? Moses ends up going up and he gets these laws from God given to him. And what happens while he's gone? He's up on the mountain talking with God and the nation of Israel gets impatient. They don't know what's become of Moses. They say, what's happened to this Moses? That's pretty impersonal for a guy that just led you uh, out of Egypt, uh, water from rocks, uh, part in Red Seas. And what's this Moses, that guy that was here? What, we don't know what's happened to him. So Moses' brother Aaron agrees to create a gold calf to represent God so that the people may worship it. And he builds an altar for it. While this is going on, God, of course, is talking to Moses and says, uh, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's not good. That's not good when God has identified you as a stiff-necked people. So Moses, uh, the Lord is about to, to bring his wrath upon them, and Moses kind of begs the Lord to relent, and he eventually does. Moses comes back down, he burns the calf, sprinkles the stuff everywhere, and eventually God uh, sends plagues in response to the gold calf to kind of teach people a lesson. Well, so are we getting the point here? Is anybody else kind of fed up with the nation of Israel? You're like... Hey, I want some water. Oh, water from a rock. Cool. God takes care of it. Oh, we're trapped against the sea. Part it. You walk through. Okay? Look at everything that they've seen. They were delivered out of slavery by a fulfilled promise of God. They were led by the fire of God. They were fed by bread that shows up like dew on the morning ground. Okay? They were watered from a rock, and they've been protected by the supernatural hand of an all-powerful God. And what was their response? Oh, praise the Lord. A grumble, grumble, grumble. Right? They act as if nothing happened before. They acknowledge that it's his power and his grace and then act as if he is powerless and uncaring. They see the hand of God and they know that he's real and then they act like he doesn't exist. They seem to suffer from some sort of spiritual amnesia that can't quite be explained. But if I think about it, they remind me of somebody. And the irony of all ironies is I think they remind me of Pharaoh. The very man who kept him in slavery treats God the same way his chosen people do. What did Pharaoh do? He would see the miracle and then he would let the nation go. And then he would change his mind. He would harden his heart. God would present himself. Pharaoh would succumb and then reject God after that and raise himself back up. He would see the works of the Lord, react, and then reject the work and go back to how he was behaving before. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the nation of Israel. The very guy that you are upset with for holding his thumb on you is treating God the same way that you're treating God. But it also sounds like somebody else. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone who at one point seems to acknowledge God and then in short order behaves in a way that reflects that they don't believe in God at all? Do you know anybody who would acknowledge God with their mouth, but in essence reject Him with their actions? If someone watched your life with the volume turned down, would they be able to tell that you're following Christ? Persistence and continued faith is the very thing that we're being warned about in Hebrews. The nation of Israel is our perfect example. And listen to the warning again. This is in Hebrews 3.12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is our basic issue here. Unbelief is the issue with the nation of Israel. Notice that the writer doesn't say, Take care lest you do something evil. The concern is the state of your heart, because ultimately the state of your heart will guide your actions. 
So the question for us is, is do your actions reflect belief or disbelief in God? For example, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? If it's the inspired word of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe, I'd sure want to know what's in it. Do we read it? Do we study it? Do you believe, as Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, that whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith? Do your prayers reflect a belief that they will be answered? Do your prayers reflect an interactive, relational, living God that loves with unimaginable depth? Do you believe that our God is a God of miracles? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that he sent to us on earth his son Jesus to die a sinner's death, a death that we deserved, so that we may be redeemed, rendered back into the perfect image of God that we were created as? Do you believe that through the death of Jesus Christ you have been forgiven for every transgression, every foul word, every nasty thought, every sinful deed, and every act of rebellion? Do you believe that? Does your life reflect that this is what we talked about last week right do the actions of your life reflect that you've been forgiven do not harden your hearts in the rebellion notice that, that hardens a, a unique word and it's the same word that the bible uses about pharaoh right he hardened his heart and that's what we're being warned against now do not harden your hearts is in the rebellion it's your heart the heart is the issue if you truly believe and are seeking God's help, which you will need, your actions will reflect those beliefs. But it needs to start with your heart. Now the cool thing is, is we're not in this alone. In fact, we are accountable to one another. Uh, back in verses 12, 13, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care, be on guard, and encourage one another. Notice it's not talking to one person, right? It's saying to be mindful of anyone among you from falling away from the living God. In fact, we're encouraged to exhort one another. It's one of the tenets of the faith, right? We don't sprinkle babies, but we exhort here. The phrase that they use, it, well, exhort tends to mean, or it means strongly urge and encourage, okay? I like the phrase he uses too. He says, as long as it's called today. He's a tricky one, this guy. Right? Because today is today until it's tomorrow, in which then it is today. today. He's got you. Okay? It's a wicked web, and he's got you snared in it. You have to encourage people every day. Uh, it reminds me of the Latin phrase, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. It's that type of passion that should be part of it. As long as it is today, we need to exhort, admonish urgently that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of thin, sin. We need to be reminded daily, encouraged, lest we fall, lest we drift away. And harden is key, because harden implies a curing over time. You become calloused, and you're unable to be molded differently. And we end up this way because we permit ourselves to do it. We allow it over time. We build up small habits of disbelief, okay, little by little, and try to act like we had nothing to do with it. We find ourselves in the position of not knowing how we got there, and unsure where we're at anymore. And it reminds me of Aaron back in that calf-making debacle that we talked about in Exodus, right? Um, if you remember, the deal was Moses was up there and Aaron was down. 
And uh, he comes down and there's this gold calf there. And Aaron's defense in Exodus 32, he says, So I said to them, uh, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Really? You tossed gold in and a gold calf jumped back out of you? Is that really what happened? It's tough because previously in Exodus 32, it tells us that Aaron asked for the gold and then made a calf out of it. The thing is, is we're constantly tossing our own gold into the fire. Okay? Little things that we do. We just randomly toss them in. And then we're standing there holding the golden calf and we're looking at God and we're saying, I have no idea where this calf came from. I just, it just showed up, this golden calf in my hand. Okay? We need to pay attention and be on guard for both ourselves and other people. Last week, um, after the sermon, Jared came up to me and he said, he said, Ben, you, you say K a lot in your sermon, which is short for OK, right? And, and I get that, I, I think, from dealing with small children. It's fun when small children agree with you, when they're you know, a year and a half, two years old, and you can say whatever and just say OK, and they're like, OK. Uh, it's cool because I have someone in, in support of me at the house. I can say, whatever, you know, what are we having for dinner? Well, I think we'll have chocolate. OK? OK. Kids are helpful like that. Um, so I think it's from having dealt with little kids, but it's also a bad habit, and it's mildly distracting. So Jared was nice enough to encourage me to not use K after every sentence. Uh, this was the second sermon of last week. These are the number of Ks I used in my sermon. This was the first sermon today, so better, but still a problem, right? I've replaced right. I only have two in here, but I'm pretty sure I missed some earlier in the sermon, so I'm going to put another two in just to keep it honest. But it's, it's going down, right? It's, it's getting better? Don't, don't tease me, Joe Pullen. So here's the, here's the benefit, right? I had someone that was willing to encourage me, that was willing to step in and say, Ben, you use K a lot. Did it get better? It got better. Because someone was willing to encourage me, and I'm keeping an eye on it. I'm, I'm watching for it. I'm trying not to do it as often. I'm trying not to throw so much gold into the fire, so that when God comes up, I, I can say, well, I have no idea where this sermon full of K's came from. I do, because someone pointed it out to me, and I recognize it. And I can work on it. I can make it better. I almost did it. I almost said it right there. It was, so here's, here's what happened. Last, I was making some excellent progress in the last sermon, and then I gave this example, and I pretty much caved the rest of the way out. 90% of these are after I brought up the example. I feel like I'm doing better. <laughs> so the question is, is, do you have someone that is in your life that is willing to encourage you? That is willing to step in when things aren't going the way they should, to keep habits of disbelief out of your life? And do you care enough to encourage somebody else? Here's what I want you to walk away from, away with this week. The first is to guard your heart and make sure it's right. It's frustrating to be out of sync. It's frustrating to have your heart, have a set of beliefs, and then have your actions be completely different. We're not made to live like that. And we can, we can head that off at the past by being mindful of those things that are different. Mindful of the thing that I say I believe and then my action that is inconsistent with that. 
Yeah, you'll still fail and we'll still need the forgiveness. But we aren't meant to live in that state of frustration. And when you're living and you're not making any progress on bringing those two together, it's a frustrating existence. It's difficult. We also need to be mindful of actions in your life that don't match those beliefs. And be wary of them. Be concerned about them. Pray on them and rectify them. Take steps to change. Oftentimes, we'll lament the difference there. We'll say, oh, you know, Lord, I thought you were going to take care of me. And we reach out to God and we realize that He's trying. We're running. We're not, we're not doing the things that God wants us to do to bring those things together. It's out there. We're not reacting to it. And so we need to be mindful of those actions and constantly pray about those things that are inconsistent between our actions and our beliefs. It's a heart issue. And if our heart is good, then we just have, we're fighting against the th- basic things of the world, right? If our heart is good, it's not that we're going to have a, a clean and, and easy break, but it just means that we can more easily identify those things that are, that are driving us away and pray on them and rectify them and bring us back to, into synchronization with what it is that we believe. Also, we need to be the encouragement for someone else. We have a responsibility to those that are around us. We don't just come to Jesus and then get to sit on the sidelines. Okay? We cheer people on. We coach them on. We, we train them. And it's, it's okay to approach and point out things that aren't going in the right direction to someone else that is trying to follow Christ. Don't mistake that for judgment. When you're five years old and you have your hand about ready to put into a flame on top of the stove and your dad says, No! He's not judging you. He's trying to keep you from putting your hand in the fire. He's encouraging you to not make a wrong decision by burning your fingers. Sometimes we stay away from encouragement because we feel like we're being judgmental. Hey, I saw that sin on you. That shouldn't be what we're doing. We're saying, I saw that and I wanted to encourage you. And I wanted to help you. I wanted to provide direction and assistance. Okay? That's another one. It's doing so good. We need to be an encouragement for the people that are around us. Let's pray.